0: As we begin, I just want to say that uh, uh, how much I am thankful to our church family for your generous uh, prayer support and financial support that you've given to our daughter Catherine. Uh, I can tell you that she's having a wonderful time. Uh, Feels as though it's a real privilege to be there. Uh, God has uh, blessed her to have this kind of context in uh, this orphanage in Quito, and I want to thank all of you who've been praying for her. And I. Hope that you'll be able to read her blog. Uh, if you don't know how to do that, uh, you can talk to me and I'll tell you how you can do that. But um, we're just thankful for, again, for our church family. It really means all the world to us to have uh, the kind of support that uh, that we feel and uh, have recently received. Let's uh, join our hearts together in prayer. <coughs> again, our Father, we look to you as the source of all things. And as we've been reminded earlier, you're the source of all truth. You're the source of all life. And we pray, Father, that you might, by your life-giving Spirit, help us to see how we're to live. How we can celebrate life. How we can be those who bring life. And in so doing, Lord, that we might be used by you to be those who help expand the kingdom of light and to overcome, in whatever small way, by your grace and through your word and your power, the kingdom of darkness. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. During the different historical eras, human life has not always been highly valued. I'm not telling anything you don't know. But you know, of course, there are many times and many expressions of Reality in which we find life has become quite cheapened. Prior to the conquest of the Canaanites back in biblical times, the child sacrifice was a common practice. Infants were sacrificed by the prophets of Baal and his wife Ashtoreth. And in ancient Greece, another period of time, and in Rome, abandonment of infants was commonplace. Unwanted babies were uh, just taken out and left in a forest or in a mountainside area to be consumed by wild animals or left to starve. We know that women also have endured times in which they have been viewed as having little value. In ancient cultures, a wife was commonly thought of as being the property of her husband Aristotle wrote that a woman had the value somewhere between a free man and a slave. I remember reading years ago about the missionary William Carey, who traveled to India in that area of the world back in the late um, 18th century. He was shocked to learn what was happening to the widows of that society. In accordance to Hindu teaching, widows, sometimes voluntarily and sometimes uh, involuntarily, were burned at their husband's funeral pyre in a practice known as satay. It has now been uh, legal. It has now been forbidden by the laws of that land. But it was commonly believed that a good woman, quote unquote, would follow her husband into death. That was her obligation, a way in which she expressed her love and devotion. In today's world, we know that the United Nations estimates that there are an estimated 200 million girls who are quote-unquote missing in our world. That it has been said that three of the most dangerous words in today's world, in certain parts of today's world, are, it's a girl. Because if a parents have a child and the child happens to be a girl, that's uh, not something that's highly favored in many parts of the world, including China, including India, in which there's widespread practice, of course, of abortion and infanticide, And so there are these missing people in our world today. As you know, China has so many men who are living, and there's no spouse for them. There are no women available for them in terms of the proportion of the kinds of, uh, of uh, one-child uh, rules and regulations that they have followed. Another form of devalued life has been, of course, the widespread problem of Slavery. Ancient cultures viewed slaves as, quote, animated tools. And it is estimated even today that there are some, and again, these statistics, uh, you know, I don't know how accurate they are, but I think the numbers are more than we would want to believe. 32 million people, it is estimated, are enslaved today. And of those 32 million, it is estimated that about 80% of those people are forced into some sort of sexual servitude, and that they perform some sexual service in exchange for money under duress, under requirement, unless they would be abused, if they didn't. And therefore, sex trafficking is a huge problem in our world today. Even in our own country, it even I read about it recently, even in Ronkonkoma, these things happen under the radar all around us. There are millions of enslaved people who have been mistreated, abused, bought, and sold like livestock. Of course, we all know that even in the lifetime of my parents, we know that the six million Jews who were exterminated along with homosexuals and various other people that they determined were not valuable people during the Holocaust in Nazi Germany. It is continuing on today in Durfur and other parts of our world. People, because they are a certain ethnic background or a certain sex or gender or because they are people who are hated, they are in many ways, put into a classified people of genocide. These people should be destroyed. It raises the question, how valuable is human life? Are we to follow the worldview that is so prevalent in our world today of naturalism, which insists that humans are only, quote, bundles of genetic information, or that people are just the products of conception? Is human life different? Is it unique from all other forms of life? And what makes life special or unique, human life? I'd like to just go back and ask you to follow with me to Genesis chapter 1 as I briefly just uh, examine once again the anchor text, the portion of Scripture from which we build and understand our biblical worldview about human life. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 31. Having described a number of other Parts of creation that God had spoken into existence. We read in verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And then he says, verse 28, and God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And then God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed, it shall be food for you. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the sky, and everything that moves on the earth which has life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. I'd like to just point out just two main points here this morning for our reflection and thought. First of all, I want to just... Remind you, as we all who know biblical worldview know, that there is a unique creator of mankind. The creator of mankind. It's interesting that when you think about if someone invents a new product, a new gadget, some new medicine, if they come up with some new technology, then the first thing they often want to do is to secure a patent for that either technology or for that gadget or for whatever product or medicine that they've invented. And having secured the legal rights as the inventor of that product, therefore they also then become its owner. Well, here in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, we read that God created man. Male and female, he created mankind. And with straightforward language, the Bible records an important fact. God alone created human life. It was not done by a large and extensive number of individuals involved in that. God fashioned together the complex creature we call human beings. And the person who's sitting to your left or to your right or in front of you or behind you, the person who lives beside you or behind you where you are residing, the person whose locker is beside yours at school, that person is the handiwork of God. And they and you are not the culmination of billions of years of random mutations. But you and I are amazing, wondrous creations of an intelligent designer and an all-powerful creator. So my first sub-point there is humans are designed. We are designed by God. And that's why I had us read Psalm 139 earlier. Because according to that psalm, again, the psalmist reflecting upon the fact we are designed, every intricate detail of our human body was designed by God. Every human was fearfully and wonderfully made by a master craftsman, that is God himself. And this kind of complex design is still being explored by the greatest and most brilliant minds in our world. It is until 2003, it took all those years of understanding and knowledge and beginning to unpack the complexity of the human um, makeup and of our smallest elements of information in our bodies. 2003, an international team successfully sequenced and mapped the entire human genome. Now, I don't understand all of this. It's beyond me. But what I've tried to learn and read about this is that we now, accordingly... To some um, information I've read on the line. We now have the ability to read, and then I'm going to substitute in here, to read not nature's blueprint, which is what the website said, but we now have the ability to read the, uh, God's complete genetic blueprint for building a human being. It is billions and billions of bits of information have all now been analyzed and explored through computer technology. And we now understand and can see the careful, intricate information that makes up who we are, that has all this information about a complete set of DNA in the human body, telling all about hereditary uh, information about you and what what, uh, your parents were like and what you're like and all these different things. All this stuff is carried around in our cells that makes you unique, different from me and different from everyone else. This level of complexity proves that humans are not the culmination of some sort of random mutations over billions of years. And that's why a second point here is humans are complex. Of course, I learned that after I got married. Uh, We're very complicated in terms of our people. And my wife, of course, knows that I'm the most complicated person in that relationship. I'm not disparaging her. I'm just saying the fact is that We are very complicated people, even down to the information that resides in a cell in your body is extremely complicated. The reality is that we were made by God, not just to exist in a complicated fashion, but that we were made by God. And this is the point of the text here, to be in relationship with God. The writer of Genesis 1 breaks this formula that he has already developed. didn't have time to read the whole chapter 1. But if you were to take the time to read it through, you get to this pattern of hearing this repeated phrase, let there be light, verse 3. Or let there, uh, let the waters be gathered, verse 9. Or let the earth sprout vegetation, verse 11. Let these things happen, which was God saying, this is what's going to happen next. But then you come in and you hear this, er, er. You get this a, a change of things, dramatically different in the pattern in verse 26. Let us make man in our image. It's just totally different. Speaking in the plural here, the creation of man and woman was the direct involvement of a personal creator. And the author of Genesis contrasts this with the creator's lack of personal relationship with stars and with birds and with the teeming seas or whatever. Uh, the various forms of light. This is expanded and, of course, retold in the next chapter of Genesis, chapter 2, verse 7, where this is further unpacking the significance of God's involvement in His creation of man in such an intricate and special way. Verse 7 of chapter 2. The Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, And man became a living being. Did you catch the the intimate involvement in that process? Humans are unlike all other creatures that God made. There was no evolving from lower life forms. Humans were designed to have personal connection. Let her see. Personal connection with the God who made them, with their creator. What a contrast that is to the worldview that's so prevalent among us of materialism or what's normally called naturalism which holds that all reality is made up of just matter there is no such thing as the supernatural and this worldview of course insists that the universe has existed forever in some form or other and presently in the form in which the world exists it has now happened as a result of chance events over a long period of time and such a view unavoidably leads to pessimism. There is no thought of future. There is no thought thought of meaning. It is a sense of emptiness that life really doesn't have any significance to it. We've just somehow landed here. And in the midst of all this meaninglessness, humanism cannot provide an adequate basis to view human life with any sort of dignity. Human value is defined in terms of, sadly enough, looks, It's defined in your productivity. How much can you earn? How much can you produce? It is defined in terms of your usefulness to somebody or something. And the biblical worldview, however, insists that every person has value because God has made them and he owns them. And each one of you, my friend, is valuable in the eyes of God, your creator. No matter... How smart you are. No matter how much money you earn. No matter how tall you are or how short you are. No matter how many friends you have on Facebook. Some people think that you're defined by your importance by how many people list you as their friend. That's not the definition of how your value comes where your value is rooted. You're valued by God. You were made by God and you were made for God. And that is the truth of who the biblical worldview depicts human life. Now I want to move then, having made that foundational point, I want to move now to our second point, the unique nature of humans, human life. Of all the types and categories of living creatures that we've mentioned in the first chapter of Genesis, only one form of life carries the designation of being made, verse 27, in the image of God, or in the likeness of God. Now, we're not talking here, of course, about being made in some sort of physical uh, characteristics that l- resemble God in His somehow having some human body. We know that's not what it means at all. But we know that it applies to both men and women. It's significant that it's both men and women both bear the image of God. And so it's boys and girls, male and female, they possess this unique nature characterized by at least three attributes. I'll list them quickly here. Some of the attributes that we would understand that flow out of this idea of being in the image of God is number one, we have attributes of personality. Personality. As image bearers, we are able to attain knowledge. We're able to experience a number of emotions. We have the ability to make decisions. We are people who are able to express thoughts and to design and build things like buildings or compose symphonies or build hospitals or discover medicines to write novels, among other things. Uh, Francis Schaeffer, that great thinker and uh, apologist of the Christian faith back in the 70s and 80s, I had an opportunity to actually see him in person when I was uh, traveling one time in Switzerland in a tour we had with college. And I remember him talking about, what is it that makes man so interestingly different and unique? He described it as the mannishness of man the fact that we are people who have personalities and we have these kind of distinctive characteristics. And the only worldview that explains why we are so different than other forms of life is because we are bearing the image of God. Secondly, there are attributes of morality. Every person has a certain level of freedom and therefore every one of us is responsible for our actions. And before the fall... In the words of Augustine, everyone was able not to sin, that is, Adam and Eve. But now after the fall, we are not able not to sin. Because, obviously, we're not compelled or forced to sin, but we do so in keeping with our sin nature. And when we make the choice to sin, we know it is wrong, and we know that we're not like animals. We don't just act in that way because of instincts, but because we know that we are unique as people who have a conscience. We have a sense of right and wrong wired into us the way that God has made us. You say, how do you know that? Well, Romans chapter 2 very clearly describes the fact that God has written the laws upon our hearts. And he says, it is our conscience that bears witness to the fact that we know and have a sense of what's right. And people will push you to a certain point and you will realize if somebody treats you in a certain way, you know inherently that's wrong perhaps you've witnessed that happening uh, i think it was cs lewis talked about when someone uh, kicks a woman off an older elderly woman off of the bus and takes her seat on the bus and pushes her off you know inherently there's something wrong with that if the person is only 18 years of age and so we all know that have this certain sense of morality that's the way god's wired us and made us unique and different i don't think my dog has too much of a conscience when she doesn't obey me when i call her and encourage her to to, uh, uh, be obedient to my admonitions. She looks at me like, well, what's wrong with you? Okay, we won't go into too much uh, dog psychology here, but these things are important to understand the differences. Okay, lastly, we talk about personality and morality. There's also the attribute of spirituality. All under the heading of being in the image of God. Every single person was created to know God. And to commune with God. Although we are told every human shares certain genetic similarities with animals. We know that. There's a lot of shared similarities. No animal possesses the kind of yearning and heart's desire to worship. Only humans are aware of God. And I won't unpack that. I think it's pretty obvious. But there's a sense in which we've all... uh, There's no other forms of life that create churches or create places of worship. Clearly, it's something that God has made us unique for Him and to be in relationship with Him. And as believers, we are blessed to have this God-given framework through which we can see life. And we're privileged to understand why humans are unique from other forms of life. And our challenge as believers and followers of Jesus Christ is to live in such a way as to demonstrate our God-given value and the God-given dignity that people who bear the image of God and who bear the image of a personal creator that they are deserving of. I'd like to list several of these listed under implications here. There's like five or six of them. So I apologize if you don't have room, but I'm just going to tell you uh, where I'm going here. Number one I wanted to reflect on, one way to express our humanness, the mannishness in Schaefer's words, that would honor God and therefore highlight and celebrate our humanness is to honor God's desire And imitate God. By this I mean, one way we do that, and there are many ways to imitate God, but one is to say that we would express our creativity. And that we as people who are able to express different forms of creativity, whether that means in art, in photography, uh, in gardening, in cooking, with music, in language, in writing... Uh, A number of ways, web design, and there are people are extremely gifted and able to express themselves and being creative. If you're a manufacturer, you're being expressive, taking some some sort of uh, uh, um, objects that are raw materials and you're making something with that that's useful and beneficial. These are ways in which we express our creativity. And I believe there's a greater and greater need for this as the world becomes more sophisticated technologically. People are all the time dealing with life on an electronic level it's helpful for us to remember we are humans who have an, an, an innately uh, a given the ability to create and to be creative and express it in so many different ways. That is a wonderful way of expressing our value and dignity as human beings. Um, another way I would like to suggest is, secondly, is what I would call a relational respect. Relational respect. By that I mean to think through how is it that you interact with people around you in everyday life? How do you react to and relate to fellow students that you cross paths with, your relatives, your co-workers? James chapter 3 helpfully reminds us that one of the ways that we can help other people sense their inherent value and worth is to show them respect in how we address them and talk to them. I think it's more than that, but at least he does say, in James chapter 3, verse 9, bless, How is it that with some people bless the Lord and Father and also curse men who have been made in the likeness of God? So he's tying together the fact that if we understand that people are made in the likeness of God, then cursing them is not appropriate. Because that's not the right way to address someone who bears the image of their Creator. It's disrespecting the Creator who made them. Not, not to mention the actual person themselves. And so I would just, it, help, it needs to be pointed out here that all forms of verbal abuse, all forms of physical abuse, and of relating to people in improper ways clearly is condemned in Scripture. That is not in keeping with who we are as people who bear the image of God. And domestic violence, any forms of torture, and any forms of of uh, abusive Speech is clearly abhorrent to God. So that's the negative way of understanding that principle. The positive way of understanding that principle is to say that we are to bless those who are made in the image of God. How do we do that? I'd like to make a couple suggestions here. I can't unpack this too much. But we can make a point and deliberately think, how can I include people who tend to be ignored or tend to be overlooked in culture and in my life around me? Who are the overlooked and ignored people around you? I, can, I am convinced that one of the glories of God and His church, the body of Christ, is that the church is in the process of developing community that unites people who are diverse, people who are different. They're not all the cookie cutter the same. And we demonstrate to the world that God values all people. Not just a certain kind of people. And all of us, I'm convinced, are designed for community. And so that's why, as a person in your circle of influence, one of the ways you can offer blessing to those around you in respecting the fact that they bear the image of God is to include them somehow. Include them in a conversation. Include them in what is going on in your life and welcome them to be a part of whatever is going on. It's one of the greatest ways we can show that kind of respect. Thirdly, I'd like to suggest another way to express the fact of our uh, the fact that we are celebrating the dignity of human life is what I call compassionate care. Compassionate care. Uh, this is a wonderful way of putting in putting feet to what we affirm about people. This is what, the, obviously, the CARE Center is all about. And I'm so glad that Doreen has been here today to help expand that for us and help paint that picture a little bit for us. But one of the reasons that people devalue life is not because they determine in their minds, well, I just despise you, and therefore I'm just going to eliminate you. But oftentimes, the value of life has been minimized and cheapened is because of economic hardships and abusive treatment that they've received from other people. And so we as the people of God are called to demonstrate God's love to people who are in need of some sort of support or guidance or, or help. Like example of Long Island Youth Mentoring talks about the fact that they're there to try to provide mentors to boys who are growing up with no father figure. And to young mothers who are now raising children, the care center says, let's take that young mother and let's mentor her, show her how to raise that child because she has no mother or father like many of us have been blessed with who will show her the way, provide a model to them, exemplary. Follow me as I do these things. And this is where the members of the body of Christ, we can think about what James said. He said what? Visit the orphan." Involve yourself in the lives of people who do not have support people around them like parents who love them and teach them and direct them. And so there are ways in which we can come along and partner with them through becoming mentors or through ministries that do those things. Or you can sponsor a child. You can actually become involved in supporting with your finances and in your letter writing and other ways. You can partner with ministries that support children who live cross-culturally. And they're facing shortages. They need somebody to provide for them and help assist them. Why? So that they can get an education, so they can get proper nourishment. It's amazing how you can affect and touch a life. If you ever want to hear an amazing story, get Joyce Bogan alone for about 25 minutes and she'll tell you some incredible, amazing ways in which a small level of support as she had opportunity to actually visit the child that she's involved in supporting in Uganda. It's amazing how life has changed for this one child. And the point is for all of us here, of course, that we can partner in ministries that try to demonstrate compassionate care for those who need help. And there are many people who need help in our world today. Basic needs like food and clothing and housing, medical care. It's interesting that those who face grinding hardship of poverty, how they're blessed when someone enters into their world and says, There is somebody who cares. There is somebody who sees your need. There's somebody who affirms you're a valuable person. You're not just a victim of difficult circumstances. And I've been meditating on Ephesians 4 and trying to think through this whole concept of caring compassion. And to think about Ephesians 4 is a pattern of stop doing this, Paul says, and start doing this. And he says, For a person that steals, A person that's filled with greed and doesn't care about what other people have and just takes things for themselves, regardless of the value and the property rights of others. Paul doesn't say, just stop that and smack them on the hand. Paul says, look, instead of doing that, he says, what? Work hard, apply your own hands to hard labor, doing something that's good. And he says, why? Why would you do that? just so you can enrich your own life, just so you can make yourself comfortable, so you can have a great retirement, and walk along a beach and play golf every day? No, he says the reason you do that is what? Ephesians 4.28, to share with someone who has need. So that what you have been able to benefit from and to meet your own needs, you have your needs met so well that you're able to now say, I've got needs met, let me help somebody else. And that's one of the greatest cures for dealing with greed that we all have to face in this culture of um, of uh, so much materialism around us. Well, there's much more we could say about that. Uh, let me, number four. Let me suggest: do justice. Do justice. What do you mean? Well, I'm thinking of Micah six eight, and I'm a, and in order to affirm the value of human life, we do so by being salt and light in a world system that oftentimes is measuring the value and worth of people according to worldly standards. And there's no basis of dignity for so many people in our world. And so we have to speak out and speak up for them. We have to be the voice of those who have no voice. We have to be those who will take a stand for those who are abused and neglected and sold and enslaved, for those who are being aborted and those who are discriminated against and imprisoned unjustly. They need somebody who will speak out and be a voice that says, this is not right, this is not good, there's a better way. And so we can voice our concern for justice locally as well as globally. Number five, and these again, I'm not expanding them as much as I could have, but uh, I'd like to suggest that one way is uh, what I would call support and encouragement of adoption. One way you can affirm and value, give value and dignity to every person is to support and encourage adoption. It seems like we've had a great illustration of this recently in our whole society and culture upon the passing of Steve Jobs. Uh, I don't know, if, I don't, maybe there are some here who don't know Steve Jobs. Uh, he is the former CEO of Apple Computer. Uh, he recently died. Um, his birth, interestingly enough, in 1955, he wasn't that old. 1955. He was born to two University of Wisconsin graduate students. And they courageously chose to honor the life of this little boy that obviously was ill-timed in his arrival of the world. They were involved in research and, and, and their group degrees. They had no ability at that time perhaps to take care of him. And so they offered this little baby up for adoption. And when you talk to Steve Jobs as he when he was alive, he spoke so highly of his adopted parents, he looked considered them his actual real parents. He was so blessed by them and so helped by them uh, that he realized the blessed, blessed gift of life given to him and look at the huge impact that little baby who was valued and cherished given the opportunity look at the huge impact he made as almost all cultures of the world today are involving themselves in using technology from Apple computers, whether it's their iPhone or their iPad or a computer, whatever. Here's one life that's made a huge difference because it was valued enough to let it be the little child be adopted to grow up and impact our world in amazing ways. So much more could be said about that as well, I'm sure. But that leaves me with my final point here, so stay with me, because this is very important that we need to emphasize The last point here I would say is we need to proclaim and we need to pattern our lives after transformative truth. And by this I mean the gospel. It's important that we proclaim biblical truth to those who have suffered under the curse of sin, who have lived life in a very difficult life in a world that is twisted and distorted and corrupted by sin, the curse of sin. They have suffered in so many different ways. It's important that we give and extend hope to them with the gospel. That God has the power to recreate. God has the power to restore to us and restore us to a sinless state. And that God is in the process of rebuilding the brokenness of our individual life and our world in general. And only those who live for good times, those who are acquiring wealth, and sexual escapades, they are the ones who need a greater purpose for life. And that's really what most, many people in our culture today, that's all they're living for. They need to know there's a personal God who has made them, a personal God who is there to redeem them, who loves them, and who has given His own Son and the Spirit of God to empower them and change them. There is no longer, by no longer living for ourselves, if we have understood and, and the gospel has transformed us, we will no longer live for ourselves, but live for Jesus who died and rose again on our behalf. In That way we will demonstrate the power of God who alone can enable us not to use people, which is what ten people tend to do if they view them as just products of conception. Instead of using people, we will what? We will serve people. And the gospel is the only means by which people are changed on the inside so that they have a desire to truly serve people in a selfless way. I came across a powerful article uh, speaking to this issue of the gospel and its significant power to transform by Russell D. Moore. Uh, Russell Moore, you'll recall, spoke in our church a number of years ago in a special conference. Uh, he is uh, one of the um, administrators and on staff there at the Southern Theological Seminary. And in his blog the other day, which i 've made copies of they 're available below the mailboxes, he talks about the applying the gospel to an abortion culture. He says too often we need to make sure that we say to people, "Yes, the gospel talks about accountability, and there 's a day in which there is judgment coming that 's true we need to, that voice needs to be heard but it 's the same gospel says that what the gospel applies to the conscience of people who have made choices, who have done things that they know increases their guilt and they feel ashamed, the Gospel says there's hope for you. There is forgiveness for you. There is healing in Christ for you. It is Christ who died for people like you and like me. You say, oh yeah, well you've never had abortion. I put to death and had part in putting to death the sinless Son of God. I consider myself to be someone who is unworthy in that sense of being a person who has any kind of merit to offer to God, and we're all the same. And therefore, the gospel proclaims to us there is hope for people like us who have made choices, who have blood on our hands, as it were, and it's the blood of Christ who can cleanse our conscience because we all are rebels. We've all gone astray. And I'm convinced that one of the ways in which we can do this is to live out the gospel. Live out the ways in which we say, I'm not here to serve and use. I'm not here to use people. I'm here to serve Christ. I'm here to serve other people. And I'm so burdened, it seems to me, that one important way the gospel needs to be lived out by the church of Jesus Christ is in the area of respecting other people and in terms of honoring the institution of marriage and of learning to honor marriage. Hebrews 13, verse 3 or 4 says we honor the marriage bed. That is what? We avoid sexual immorality. That we... Evidence the fact that, God, we submit ourselves to following your ways, to seeing what you've designed in the institution of marriage, and that we not involve ourselves in in physical expressions of ourselves in ways that dishonor God and sin against the people around us by taking and robbing them of what rightfully only belongs to their spouse when they are married in, in, in marriage. And I would also just suggest to you one final way, in terms of applying the gospel to us, is to unpollute our lives from the scourge and the poison of pornography. The pornography devalues human life. It reduces people to objects. Objects that that are designed to be used only for selfish gratification. And if you have been, and uh, many people have, have now had so much exposure to pornography, it has distorted your whole understanding of how to relate to people and what people are like, and you've bought into a whole different way of thinking, a way of assuming, a way of envisioning what life is all about in terms of sexuality. And so I again would say, one of the areas we can say I embrace the value of life is to say I'm unplugging, I'm getting the pollution of, of pornography out of my life and praying that God would help me move and move more and more toward purity and following The standards of Scripture. Let's pray. Father, we know this is a very expansive topic. There are many areas of concern that we all face, Lord. Some of us are here today knowing that we are weighed down with a conscience that we struggle with. I remember years ago, Lord, talking to a woman, an elderly woman, in the hospital on her deathbed. And the thing that was bothering her the most at that time, a believer, a woman who trusted and knew Christ, and I can still remember her saying to me, I had an abortion and no one ever knew about it. And and will God ever forgive me? So, Father, I pray that you would help those who find themselves weighed down with a conscience that says there is no hope for them. I pray that you might help them see the glories of Christ, that he is the one who brings life and forgiveness and healing He is the one who has died for people like us who have blood on our hands, that we might have life, that we might be changed, that we might be transformed, that we might become children of God adopted by you, all because of trusting in Christ. So, Lord, we pray that there might be, if there's someone here today who faces that kind of scenario, help them, we pray, to find healing and hope in Christ who died for them and who's raised for them. We pray also, our Father, for those of us who know these truths and who have been taught a biblical worldview. Help us, Father, to live consistently with that. Help us, Father, to creatively um, express ourselves, to be compassionate toward those who are in need. Help us, Lord, to do justice. Help us, Lord, to be, uh, live lives that show there's the transformation of the gospel in us and to respect those around us. May we be your agents, Father, of expressing your love and therefore affirming the dignity of everyone around us. May that be the evidence of the life of our church family, we pray in the name of Christ. Amen.